Hey everybody, I'm Micah Rich. And I'm Olivia Kane. And welcome to the Weekly Typographic. A podcast where we discuss our favorite type and design news from the week. Hi, Olivia. Hi, Micah. I'm How so are you excited. doing today? Well, I'm are you? thrilled. I yes, I am thrilled. We're gonna be we have some really fun links to talk about this week. We also have a really fun nerd alert this week. And it just feels good to be back in the swing of podcasting with you. It kinda does. Like it's always just a highlight. Like we had our, our like league meeting last night, which we do every week, and that always like brightens the beginning of my week. And then I'm always like, oh, shoot, we got to record the podcast. But the second we get on, we just have so much fun that it's like, this is great. I'm I'm so glad we do this every week. I was missing right? it. Right. I feel like, especially the past week or so, we've been connecting with new people, planning cool stuff ahead. We had a really nice message into our inbox from our league friend, David Jones, and he just mm. released his first commercial font and says it's all because of the Glyphs mini course I did with the league back in March. That was like that just so warmed nice my to heart. hear. Yeah, I love that. Thank you, David. Um, and thanks for sharing. And, you know, I certainly we'll be sharing with our members in the upcoming weeks. So, so cool. Very cool. And, uh, you know, we've been lining up a bunch of other workshops with some very cool teachers in a variety of topics like some core like type design stuff some like fun experimental stuff you know and 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 some that's just gonna be fun like it's just gonna be fun in the next couple of months i think seeing what we've been putting together so i'm excited for all that to come together pretty soon me too in the meantime do you want me to give a little sneak peek at the nerd alert yes what the heck are we talking about okay it is titled what's the story with double story why we have two versions of the lowercase a and g i love the title thank you you. killed it it's fun also for those interested in the difference between story s-t-o-r-y and story s-t-o-r-e-y story is spelled with an e in british spelling when you're talking about levels of a building and it's commonly spelled like that in typography. I think some people can really go either way, but most times when you're talking about a double story A or a double story G, we see it with an E-Y ending. So I thought it was appropriate. We're the league of movable type, E and movable. You might as well just <laughs> add it all in. Don't want to leave uh, anyone else. Not even I've E's, gotten, even though I've gotten so many, like, so much flack for that over the years, and it was literally just like a fun E that I threw in just to make it extra you know just be Mm -hmm. extra about it but uh, there's so many there's so many connections now i love it i love it all right first article this is a really great one super interesting really excited to be sharing this with our audience it's from dzine and is titled marie boulanger explores how typography perpetuates gender stereotypes. So Marie Boulanger has published a book. It's called XXXY, Sex Letters and Stereotypes. And um, all of the connotations that are associated with letter forms and gender, how some letters, you know, are perceived to be feminine, some are perceived to be masculine, and kind of the the issues with that, basically. You know, letters that might have kind of a confidence or a bold appearance may sometimes be considered masculine and one that are typically more ornamental or decorative or delicate 
often tend to be deemed as feminine. And she kind of breaks down all these, you know, things that relate back to the gender binary and saying, hey, how about we start rethinking this, you know, moving forward? And how can we start to rethink this? I do really like this message. I think it's pretty flippin' awesome that it, not only is it like a good message, but it's it's beautiful illustrations from what I've seen in this article about this book of exactly what she is talking about. And there's a quote in here that I, I think sums it up pretty well of type is used as a dangerous tool to cement layers of stereotypes conveyed through every component of design, such as type, color, and layout when it shouldn't be. I think she has really interesting points about how, you know, gendered, quote unquote, gendered typefaces have a role in marketing certain products and then end up enforcing stereotypes. She has this example of a set of pens and the pens yeah. are by Bic and they say Bic for her. And they have her yeah. in this like really delicately drawn scripty font. They have flowers and ornaments all over it. They even have another script above it saying, you know, beautifully smooth. And, you know, what that means when you know females see that you know as a child or as you're getting older and you know it does really reinforce a weird thing and it's about a pen how is a pen for like a woman that doesn't make yeah. sense <laughs> that that was the first thing that stood out to me too i was like what that really exists that's wild yeah yeah but I also like the, you know, it doesn't, it only shows snippets of the book, obviously, but the one that is talking about packaging for perfumes and mm -hmm. colognes, mm -hmm. you know, it's a really interesting side-by-side -side visual of, like, the type of typography on those two different things. And that just made me realize, like, that is a huge thing in that industry, for sure, from what I have yeah. seen just as a consumer. Yeah, exactly. Or, like, you know, even perfumes or household goods like candles you can see like a variety mm. of different things if you go into a men's store versus a women's store what might be like trying to get marketed towards people still i think there's certainly been a blend of those lines in recent years but like it still exists and i'm super interested this book is right now only in french marie hopes for it to be translated to english i would absolutely love that i could try to brush up on my french if i wanted to get into it also we talked about one of her recent type Face. maybe a couple months back she did the typeface Falberg I believe for Positype so she's a kind of young budding designer to certainly keep on your radar yeah that's pretty darn cool and there's a couple interesting links at the in the like last paragraph of other typographic projects that are kind of in this vein so cool cool to link through cool cool find all right our next article we have is from creative review and it is Pentagram redesigns sight and sound for a new era of film. So I admittedly did not know what sight and sound was, but it has it was founded in 1932 and it's the UK's oldest film publication and has long been considered one of the international authorities. So it is no, you know, new figure into this world of media and pop culture. It's been around for a long time. I don't know if I've seen it before, but they have a rebrand and it is very reliant on some really big and bold typography. And it's a rebrand of their magazine, but as well as their, you know, whole world of branding around them, because they talk about all sorts of media now, anything from movies to TikToks. Pretty interesting to see some just like huge, bold type kind of leading 
a whole visual identity. Yeah, I definitely love it. And one of the things that is tough for me about articles like this, about rebrands and stuff, is that it often doesn't show the history of what it was rebranded from. Yeah. And so I actually looked this up because this like bold, futurist kind of like extreme large type with photography, that is totally my jam. I love Mm -hmm. that. I love that junk. And so I wanted to see where it came from. And there is an interesting article. If you look up, if you know, if you Google it, you'll find an It's Nice That article that shows some of the past covers throughout the years, mm-hmm. which is which is very interesting to me because, you know, they show some from like the 50s, which look drastically different and mm. the 60s, which, you know, look kind of 60s. And then actually like around the end of the 70s. Oh. Uh, seems like a very similar reference to what Pentagram ended up with. Mm. They certainly like made the modern version more modern and bold and mm-hmm. uh, more extreme, but it seems like they really took that typography directly from a past identity from the late yeah. 70s. The article does say it. the new logo is a reimagining of the the previous design from the 1970s using Aldo Novariz's classic typeface Euro style. So, old-fashioned Euro style. Yeah, Euro style doesn't seem to go anywhere. It is a mountain that does not move. But it is like a, a nice, refreshing thing to kind of have it seen with these very contemporary images of cinematic stills as well as people in the field. And even though it does kind of harken back from that 70s look, it does feel like very grounded and much more appropriate than I think the last identity system they had, which I believe was like a sans serif. I Googled it. It looks very puny compared (laughs) to the boldness. Yeah, compared to like the bold and confidence of this new all caps logo. This also reminds me, you got me a book for Christmas about, like, sci-fi futurist typography. And Mm -hmm. it started out, like, the book started out basically being, like, Eurostyle is, like, one of the top three fonts that everybody uses for that emotion. And this Mm. is kind of a cool reminder where, like, they're, they're legit just using the font. And somehow it makes it feel kind of futuristic, which is just wild. It's just crazy. Right? The type and the way they treated the type for the logo is really beautiful. They have just the tiniest amount of negative space between each single letter. And so it just, it locks up really nicely and just, you know, it's pentagram. So it's done with definitely a level of polish that we expect from them. Yeah. Yeah. Pentagram. Always doing great stuff. There's one of those groups that's just like, oh, Pentagram made another great thing. I know. So very cool to see. And yeah, love the treatment of text with photography, especially. All right. Our next article comes from our league friend, Oliver Schoendorfer. Hey, Oliver, if you're listening, we love your new article and video about pairing fonts. Oh, my gosh. This might be one of my favorite articles about pairing fonts that I have found on the internet. I have had to research this topic quite a bit whenever I taught. People would always be like, but how do you pair fonts? And I'm like, I don't know, intuitively. But then, you know, <laughs> that's, that's obviously not how it happens. He really breaks down so many steps of the process that I think are often overlooked when people try to explain how to pair fonts. I love that he kind of starts with being like, first, don't be afraid to make a decision. Like, it's okay to try things out and it's okay if they don't work. You know, just even being able to dare to start 
pairing fonts is something that some beginner designers can't even get over that hump. But I love that he kind of like, he goes over basic principles for combining fonts. Number one, do you really need more than one typeface? <laughs> well, that kind of contradicts the title. You know, he talks about just how powerful it can be to use type in the same family. And he talks about making sure you have a reason for another typeface. And he gives like a handful of them too. You know, you might want them for headings or titling, or maybe your typeface you're using now doesn't perform well in a variety of scenarios. But like really trying to make it more of a science rather than a guessing game of what to do. And I feel like so many people are always like, to pair typefaces, you have to have similar X heights and proportions. And that's really like unclear for a lot of people. But he explains Mm -hmm. here how that's almost like an advanced technique and walks through how he looks not only at X height, but so many different parts of the typography anatomy. He looks at apertures, the counterforms. He looks at contrast. He even looks at double story and single story letter forms when he pairs fonts and wants to make sure they are simpatico with each other. So I just can't say enough good things about this article. I also especially love this article because... You know, one of the one of the big lead courses that I did way back in the day was kind of trying to come up with some scientific method for how to make design decisions. And this is a really detailed way of presenting some of those ways to do it that are that are similar without, you know, being this like overarching big thing. It's like here's here's a couple details you could look at. And I think a lot of this at its core is a thing that I've I've preached a dozen years now of like finding something that is different enough to be interesting visually, but with pieces that are tied together enough for them to fit together. Mm -hmm. And he like goes into a lot of really approachable details of like, Hey, you could do that with this piece of the type or this piece of the type or this. And it's very detailed and, and well-written, but also beginner friendly. Exactly. you know, he's not, he, every time he kind of introduces a more advanced term, he'll kind of go over what he means by that. So it's very much like demystifying a lot of the things that might go through a designer's head when they're trying to figure this out. So totally agree. Big, big fans. Thank you for making this, Oliver. Certainly we'll be sending it around. (laughs) Our last one, I think, is, at least before we get into the fun nerd alert, is from Dribbabubble, which I've always wanted to say out loud. I love Um, that. Please only use the formal dribbable when we refer to it again. But it's a great article on how to practice inclusive design in your daily workflow. Six tips for designers. Oh, yes. I love that. Little, little flair. I got to use my movie voice more often to yeah. on, on podcast, I feel. Yeah. It's like 90s movie intros. Right. In a world. Yes. Okay. Okay. This is great. Okay. I thought this article was quite interesting and it talks about things that we encounter in our daily lives that we likely take for granted. So it starts by saying, you know, for design to be inclusive, it has to go a step further than just our regular design thinking and to start by thinking about creating a positive user experience for all people on the web. So that is a very broad range, but we can think about a few things that like, there is no normal user. Accessibility is something that will affect basically everyone at some point in their life, whether, you know, they have a temporary disability or a permanent one, or you 
people age and start losing abilities they used to have. Starts talking about that and thinking about like the broad range of people that could be using your product. And it also kind of, I think it's really interesting when we've talked about inclusive design in the past, we've talked about how when designers think about making things inclusive, it actually helps progress technology further down the line. So I think we've talked about maybe like, was fuzzy search, do you know what fuzzy search is? When you kind of type in a, a few letters into Google and other options appear, I think that might have actually appeared from accessibility for thinking that people might not be able to type out the whole word all mm, along. I, I typically, I think that's autocomplete is what you're talking about. Yeah, sorry, autocomplete. Yeah. Exactly. Sorry, I only know a weird word for it. I mean, oh. fuzzy search is a thing, but it's kind of a different thing. Oh, okay. Yes, that's autocomplete. That was born out of that need for, you know, a more efficient interaction. And so they talk about some really interesting examples that we all benefit from when people think about inclusive design. For example, when you're watching a video and there's audio content available, it's important that there are, you know, is a transcript or is subtitles for maybe this video that you're watching because someone might not have the ability to hear it. Or maybe someone's in a loud restaurant and they still want to understand what's happening and that mm -hmm. appears. Or maybe they're somewhere where they don't want to have their phone to be loud um, and they don't have headphones and like they still want to know what's going on. But that's all stuff that we benefit from because that was actually designed with everyone in mind. They talk about how some users may only interact with a UI with one hand. That could be there was a permanent physical disability, someone has a broken arm, or even a new parent might be carrying their child all the time with their other hand. So making a UI that's interactive with that single-handedly ability uh, to interact is also something that kind of we all benefit from that has been thought through. And so all these, uh, they have a few other examples, but I just thought it was pretty interesting. I do appreciate the specific examples because I think sometimes it can feel a little overwhelming to be like, you know, design for all manner of different people in all manner of different situations that that's so vague that it's sometimes difficult to like think of any creative solution to any particular mm -hmm. problem and having the mental limitation on your creativity of being like, okay, in this scenario, what would I do to help a person with that is way easier, I think. So like the, the specific examples are, are really great. Yeah, yeah. That's what I love when I start like diving deep. The first few paragraphs, I'm like, okay, yeah, I've been like reading this before. But then when they give examples, it's like, oh my God, it all comes, all comes together in the brain. All right, Micah. Is it time? It, is it? You have to do your, can you do your movie voice for us now? It's, it's time for the nerd alert. Beautiful. <laughs> I feel ready now, and I feel properly introduced. Good. All right, guys, we are talking about double story and single story letter forms and how we have two versions of a lowercase a and a g. As simple as this premise sounds, let me tell you, there's a lot of information on the web about these things. So much so that I'm going to try to edit as much as I can to be succinct <laughs> and understandable but this is like a really interesting uh story about typography and kind of a narrative that has led us to where we are today again i'll give a nice outline i like doing this i'm making these outlines making sure we all know what's ahead we're gonna kind of be talking about what is a single story versus a double story letter form because like that's 
that's like not normal language we use with our everyday friends as designy mm. language. Then we're going to go over some history of like how these two have been involved. A single story and double story forms have been involved with each other throughout history. Where we are with the state of the single story versus the double story today. And then how to be a better typographer now that you're more informed about these letter forms dang coming through with a detailed outline i'm ready i'm here all for right it. okay let's go let's get started to talk about these two very special lowercase letter forms they're pretty much the only letters in our latin alphabet that have two super distinct versions that we've grown accustomed to to reading and to encountering that we don't really think twice about both these versions there's called a single story and a double story. So there's a single story A and a double story A and a single story G and a double story G. And the, the stories that we are talking about has to actually do with the construction of the letter forms. And it kind of relates to how we often relate letter forms to architecture. So I'm going to kind of start by breaking things down. So we have our single story A. And that's a lowercase character that is consisting of basically a ball and a stick. If we're in layman's terms, <laughs> if we're in typographer terms, we would say it has a rounded closed bowl and a stem, which is so fussy. So that's the ball and stick. This is the like lowercase it. a that we all learn to write. This is what we learned to write in grammar school growing up. And that's easy enough to imagine. The double story a is the cool kid. It's like the classy A. You don't learn to write this when you're a little kid, but it has a really great classic look to it. It has a small circular shape at the bottom with an arm that swings up top. And, you know, it's not the same as the number six, but you can think about like a reversed number six in the base construction of it if you just flipped it on a vertical. I just think that's a little bit easier than all this type jargon. So, and and the double story A is what we encounter, like most of our typographic words, whether that's printed or on the web, we see a double story A a lot of the time. Certainly it's, it's varying and it's not like one or the other, but we're pretty familiar with it. So those are our A's. Our G's, we got our single story G. Similar to a single story A, in layman's term, it's basically a loop with, you know, vertical fish hook that, you know, veers to the left. <laughs> That's easy to think about. In typographer's term, it's a rounded closed bowl and a tail that drops below the baseline and curves to the left. Some people call this an open tail G. That's easy to think about. And again, it's a one we learned to write in school. It's a very simple form. And so the double story G, so if you remember how when we do the single story, our stem just kind of curves to the left after it kind of goes below the baseline. Now we can imagine what happens curve kind of becomes tail-like and loops to the left, to the right, to the left again. It's much more complex than the single story G and it ultimately results in two counters. So that this is called a loop tail G. And an easy reference, if you're trying to think of one, is the lowercase g that Google used to use all the time in their icons. Oh, oh yeah. Back when yeah. Google was, like, especially hideous. Oh, yeah. We'll talk about that a little <laughs> bit, too. Oh, it's Wait, I have, to, I have to add in the helpful notion here that it looks to me like sideways glasses. I love that. That is so good. And g for glasses. I'm a big fan. If we want to relate these two forms back to stories, we can think specifically of the counters. A counter is an enclosed or partially enclosed circular or curved negative space. So our double story A has two counters, double story G 
has two counters. That's, that's easy if you want to kind of have a direct translation to the architecture we were talking about. All right, moving on. Interesting history about these letter forms. Nothing too crazy, but our double story G, so our fancy fancy G, according to Paul Shaw, who I know is a renowned type designer and historian, that lowercase G, the double story, originated in the eighth century by monks who were copying religious texts using Carolingian script. Carolingian being really well known for like the earliest origins of our lowercase letter form. The double story G back then didn't look exactly like ours today, but it did have an extended tail that kind of had that serpentine look, went to the left and then to the right. And so our single story G actually emerged black letter into its infamacy. So black letter calligraphy doesn't have a double story G. And even though black letter itself is like very harsh and doesn't look like the alphabet that we're familiar with today, it does really have a single story G. And so when Johannes Gutenberg did the Gutenberg Bible, mid 15th century, the most like famous printed piece out there, you know, single story G's that were used in it. But, you know, kind of as we know about typographic history, black letter did not stay around for very long in our common kind of global world. And we adopted the Roman form. If you forgot what Roman is, we can think about Times New Roman, really basic, simple structures of letter forms that are upright. And then and that kind of led to the favoring of the double story G. And that's kind of how it became into the typography world. Very common to have this double story G. There's also theory on Wikipedia. That's, I'm saying Wikipedia because I don't know how grounded this theory is. That the double story G became popular when printing switched to Roman type, like we were saying. Because the tail was effectively shorter and therefore the letting could be tighter on the typography and you could put more lines per page. Maybe. I mean... I'd believe it because the the tail of the double story G actually starts above the baseline where the tail for the single story G only starts really below the baseline. I, I, could, I could probably believe it. Okay. The two story or double story A has kind of a similar evolution. We kind of first see it with Uncial scripts, which was like fourth to eighth century AD. Think about the map in the opening of Game of Thrones, if you need something to think about. Uncial was unicase, and the A that was used in Uncial was like a 50-50 mix of like the uppercase A we're familiar with and the lowercase A of the double story. And so after that, it had a similar evolution to the G. Double story was really popular in Roman type. There was a single story A in black letter, but ultimately throughout the years, double story has prevailed in typography. So at the end of this history, double story is like still loved by typography. But, you know, that, that doesn't mean that single stories are irrelevant. I do want to talk about like why a single story A and a single story G are still in our lives and aren't really going anywhere. So there's certainly a reason. First, italics were being developed in the 16th century by calligraphers. And with this came a different structure to how letter forms were built. And the italic that was built, you know, in the 1500s, 1600s were the very beginnings of handwriting structures. Writing italics, I don't know if anyone knows calligraphy, versus writing Roman letter forms, it's much faster to write italics because of the way the structures are created and is much more efficient for people that are writing letter forms. And then if we think about our single story and our double story A's and G's, our single stories are much more simpler and easier to write 
if we're talking about speed. And so that's why they both became so popular in handwriting. Because even a double story G is like so cumbersome to write. Most people wouldn't even know where to begin to write a double story G in their handwriting. And a single story G, single story A, so much easier. I know as a kid, I wanted to be cool and have a double story A in my handwriting. I think there's a lot of people out there, which says something uh, to the kind of reputation of of double story versus single story, I think. (laughs) So, you know, how can we use this information to become a better typographer? Well, when I kind of teach, I always think of when I was in children's books and Single story letter forms are like the only letter forms that children really know how to write and are familiar with at that point in their life. So if you're working on children's media, children's books, TV shows, that might be a really great case to have single story letter forms instead of double story. They're simpler, they're more straightforward. Piggybacking on that, the single story letter forms, because they're kind of associated with how we learn what letters look like, they convey a friendliness and a very unpretentious tone to them. So they're often seen in like the startup-y Geometric Sands logo. You can find them mm-hmm. Airbnb, Casper, and Oscar. People love using that single story, A. Really fun. And then also doubling down on that, what's actually in the newsletter this week, we talk about this study that Johns Hopkins did back in 2018. And they said this, quote, that people were essentially unaware of the more common version of the lowercase print letter G, the double story G. And when they asked people to recreate it from memory, they weren't able to really do it. So like there's there's also like weird psychological kind of things to swim through when you're thinking about uh, double story versus single story. But again, it's really just like a seesaw that you have to balance because if we talk about that Google logo, I found this article where they interviewed the designer of the Google logo, Ruth Kedar. And if you remember, they really loved their double story G. About the logo, she said, the internet was new and the people did not really know how to use those things, computers. <laughs> Keter wanted the logo to appear friendly, but still convey an old-fashioned authority. So mm-hmm. maybe the double story G has something to do with a little bit more of authority or like academic or feels a little bit more mature than the single story G. So all of these things to think about. I also think pretty interesting these days, a lot of fonts, a lot of sans serif fonts will have alternates where you can uh, choose to have a single story or a double story. I encounter that all the time. And also, if you're using italics, you're going to see that most italics feature single story letter forms and most upright regular type has double story. So that's my little story on the stories. <laughs> Dang, that's a, that's a lot of history, my friend. Yeah, I feel like I ran a <laughs> marathon with that right now. <laughs> that is so, so fascinating. Lots of lots of stuff to consider, and you know the devil's all in the details of typography. So I was like, let's just get into it with these little guys this week. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> these little guys. <laughs> do you do you prefer single story or double story letter forms? I have to admit, for for the exact reason that like as a cool kid, you wanted to be a cool kid and draw double story. Like I love I love the double story. I can't help it. Mm-hmm. That G. I once the I G. learned how to write the double double story g in calligraphy i'd like add it into my regular handwriting and it's it's actually really fun to write it's like a bunch of squiggles it's like a very new ags if you're trying to imagine how you'd write it i could see how like once you once you get the right motion down it would be plenty quick to actually do it yeah you do like the top oval and then you basically just do it like a s shape underneath it and then you do the little ear on the right 
Mm-hmm. The ear. The ears where the the ears where it's at. It's so yeah. cute. I love the yeah. little ear. Ugh. So good. <laughs> so fun. Also, it's important to mention that fonts like Futura favor a single story A because they are so geometric. And actually the single story A kind of lends itself to a certain uh, niche of the geometric sans that feels very perfected. I get that. And you know I love a geometric sans. Mm-hmm. At the same time, I've always not loved that that pattern. Yeah, really? I don't I mean for no particular reason, it's just my preference. I just always look at it and I'm like, "Oh, that looks so much more childlike than the rest it of does. the font." Yeah. Yeah, I definitely get that vibe. I feel like that's how you can easily distinguish Futura if you fit in upper and lower, just lowercase. You're like, oh, there's mm. that squatty little single story. <laughs> right. Oh, it's funny. I like Ugh, it. So fun. Incredible. What a great, what a great nerd alert, my friend. Good work. Thanks. Thanks for letting me nerd out for a little <laughs> bit. That was very fun. And I hope educational. Oh, for sure. Educational. Not even a question. Good, good. All right. I think that's all we got for this week. And yeah, we'll see it. We'll see you on the interwebs and here next week with more fun schnaz. You bet. Doodle doot. Doodle doot. Cracks me up every time. <laughs>